Bibles and turn to Esther as we continue our study in the evenings through this wonderful uh, expression of the providence of God. So Esther chapter 2, we're going to try to cover the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3 tonight. And uh, hopefully you, our hearts are prepared uh, by what we just celebrated and enjoyed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, uh, we looked at the truth that God's providential power is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. And because it's comprehensive, it needs to be uh, the cornerstone of our faith. Uh, God's providential power. And we, we set up a bit of a contrast between hoping and looking for and waiting on miracles. And uh, we, we learned from the book of Esther that uh, that is not necessarily forthcoming, and that we do far better to build our faith on the reality that God's providence is rich, and it's always, always active in both good and difficult times. So that was our proposition last week. Our proposition this week is this, that God's providential power is not only comprehensive, but it's precise and personal. It's precise and personal. And this too argues for your need and for my need to uh, open our eyes to the rich reality of what God's doing in our lives personally and how in laser-like fashion it's so very, very precise. So our, our goal through the book of Esther is to really whet our appetite to the providential power of God and to uh, see that it's in it, it in itself is, uh, oh, I don't want to say is by far and away better than the miraculous, but it certainly is uh, more of the appropriate place for our faith to rest uh, in, in, in the expectation of providence. So we'll look at that tonight. Let's bow our head. We'll ask the Lord's for, Lord for help tonight, and then we'll walk through uh, this portion of the book of Esther together. Father, we thank you for your providence. We thank you. Uh, that it is rich, that it is comprehensive, that it uh, works in, in the halls of uh, nations. And it is the, 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 the story of history, is the story of God's providence. We thank you that we learned last week that God's providence is equally powerful and active in all of the political intrigue. And uh, Lord, we thank you that on the far other end of the spectrum, we saw that God's providence works even in preparation, in our upbringing, and putting all these things together. We thank you so much for that. And tonight as we look at uh, the fact that providence is equally uh, precise and equally personal, uh, that our hearts would be encouraged as well. We thank you for that. Open up our eyes. We need the Spirit's help. Uh, we ask him to illuminate uh, the minds of each person under the sound of my voice that they will take something away uh, tonight that will progressively change them into the image of Jesus. And we thank you for that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week at the beginning, uh, we asked this simple question, is the world spinning out of control? And we agreed that it certainly seemed like it. 
Uh, and to add to that, this week alone saw more vivid pictures of hurricane disaster. Uh, we saw some new North Korean aggression as missiles are shot over Japan. Uh, we also uh, continually see on the 24 news cycle the fact that our own country remains deeply divided along ideological lines. Uh, so if the world was spinning out of control last week, this week, I don't even know what the metaphor is, except that it's not seemingly getting any better. The book of Esther teaches, however, that God's rich providential power is constantly at work in all events, both normal and seemingly disastrous. God's providential power is comprehensive. Uh, tonight, we continue our study of God's rich providential power in the book of Esther. For Esther, there were no miracles forthcoming. We don't really read any miracle in the book of Esther. In this book, the Holy Spirit seems to labor very hard at weaning faith off of the milk of miracle and onto the meat of God's providential power. It is true enough that God's providential power is comprehensive. The question lingers, though, as to how precise and personal can it really be then? What is so reassuring about miracles is that they are incredibly precise and incredibly personal. But tonight we will see that God's providential power is as precise and personal as it is comprehensive and therefore is the appropriate building block and the foundation of your faith as one of God's people. So first of all, tonight I want to observe from our passage that God's providential power is precise and personal to those who are operating in concert with God's longings and desires. His people, we would say. God is providentially at work in his people. Uh, in our story, in the book of Esther, uh, if I were talking to young children, I would say these are the good guys. God is providentially powerful and precise and personal in his work with the good guys. In our story, that's Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai. And we see here at the end of chapter 2 that uh, God is, is pro, his providential power is shown very personally in the life of Esther. Very personally in the life of Esther. And I picked this up uh, from chapter 2, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as he had done when under his care. So God's providential power is very personal in Esther's life. We read in our text that the king loved Esther more than all the women. He loved Esther more than all the women. Now, it would be foolish for us to think that there were not other beautiful women in the empire who were competing for the king's affections and the title of queen. We'd be foolish to think that. Uh, we know that the word of God has already helped us to see that Esther was beautiful in both uh, figure and, or form and face. 
She certainly was an outstanding in, in those areas, but I'm sure there were many others who were as well. But the Bible personally works through the king's heart in a very providential and precise way to allow his affection to fall on her. And yet there was still a threat, wasn't there? We had already, we've already witnessed the fact that the king had demonstrated that he could love a woman just like he loved any other inanimate thing. And at any time that it was convenient for him, he could do away with her. In other words, just having the royal crown on your head does not guarantee an audience with the king. It does not guarantee his favor. And yet the Bible goes on to say, not only did Esther enjoy more than all, or the king's love more than all the other women, but she also what? She found favor and kindness with him. This is what Vashti didn't get. This is what God in his providential plan did not allow Vashti to achieve and enjoy. But God in his providence, working personally and precisely with Esther, allows her to enjoy this, this idea, not only of the king's love, but of his favor and of his kindness. And that's going to be critical if this story is going to work out as it works out. Uh, Vashti didn't enjoy it, but Esther is going to enjoy it, and uh, it's going to uh, be the salvation of the Jewish race. Uh, so very personal, uh, very precise, what God is doing in the life of Esther. He flat out just liked her. Beyond her beauty, beyond her form and figure and face, he liked her personality. He wanted her to be around him. He evidently appreciated her counsel. And, uh, and so this demonstrates how personal and how precise the providence of God truly is in her life. Another issue that eats at the reader, and I'm sure uh, uh, Esther herself, was the fact that uh, Esther was very youthful and inexperienced. We know that for a fact. She's not a, you know, a, an experienced woman in the court of the king. These are all sort of new things. These are things that are very, very unfamiliar uh, sort of the political intrigue and how things were going to work. And, and we know that God is going to call forward uh, the necessity of her being courageously obedient and putting herself smack dab in the middle of the intrigue of uh, all the king's court. But could Esther really handle that? She know that. It, would, 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 she, would she come through for the nation. Well, we're reassured here um, that in verse 19, or really verse 20, that uh, she had not yet made known her kindred or people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his control, under his, uh, under his care. So what of her youth and inexperience? Would Esther be up for the task? Did she have the character necessary to do what God's providence would require of her? Well, the reality is, friends, that God had long ago 
seen to that. What God would ask of Esther was already a part of her character. God had prepared her. He had personally prepared her as she had done when under the care of Mordecai, she listened. And she did what she was asked by those whom she uh, trusted. You see, the critical skill that God would need in the moment was not primarily, primarily a woman who was culturally savvy or smart or who could gain the attention of the king. No, that wasn't what was primarily needed in that hour. Primarily in that hour, what would be needed would be a woman of character who understood what God-ordained authority in her life was all about. You see, she understood the, the, the God-ordained order in her life. This was her, this was her uh, cousin who raised her. This was a very awkward situation, an odd, dysfunctional upbringing. But she didn't, she didn't uh, resist that. She didn't spend a lifetime chafing underneath Mordecai's instructions. No. She willingly understood that this was all a part of God's plan in her life, even as a very young girl. And she embraced uh, what Mordecai was giving her at that time. And that choice created habits which solidified her character so that when it was her time, her time in the kingdom, she would act courageously by being courageously obedient. And we'll see that. We'll see that as our story uh, uh, moves to the climax. You know, some have said that I'd rather be lucky than smart. The book of Esther argues it is better to be assured of being under God's rich, personal, and precise providential care than to be either lucky or smart. Esther's life teaches God's providence is personal. We see that. But if Esther's life teaches us that, Mordecai's life teaches us that God's providence is precise. It's precise. And we really see this um, in verses 21 and following. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan... And Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence what Mordecai had done. Uh, it's a very important part of the book. This book is highlighting the fact that not only is God's providence personal, but it's very precise. We often measure precision uh, in, in terms of timing. I mean, some people would argue that timing is everything. It's everything. And here we have Mordecai sitting in the king's gate, uh, precisely in the right place, precisely at the right time, precisely in the right distance, to hear these two officials angrily talking about King Ahasuerus. 
And Mordecai evidently follows it up, investigates, discovers their plot. And just because God in his providence had precisely put him right in the right place, Mordecai then is recorded as uh, being somebody whose witness had saved the king. You know, God's providence is personal in Esther's life. It was precise in Mordecai's. But lest we think that God's providence is limited only to his own people, let us take a look further at the truth that God's providential power is precise and personal even in the lives of the enemies of God's people. Even in the lives of, en of the enemies of God's people. So if Esther and Mordecai are encouraging the precision and the personal providential power over Haman should be very comforting, should be very comforting. And we want to see that here tonight. We, we see this really in chapter 3, chapter 3. Um, so the first thing we have here after these events, then we sort of leave this unexpected uh, uh, or, or this transition is a little unexpected. We would think that maybe Mordecai should get a little bit of a bonus, you know, in his paycheck or something. But all we have now is just that it was recorded. And uh, that's going to be important later on, as I've mentioned. So we have a clear break. And after these events, King Ahasuerus promotes Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews." the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So here we have the threat finally identified. And it's really not up until chapter 3 that we begin to see that there is a threat. We, we certainly have it kind of being foreshadowed for us. But we took great comfort in the fact that chapters 1 and chapter 2 is all of God's providential preparation. The threat hadn't even been revealed yet. But God knew, and God was comprehensively and now personally and precisely preparing for this Haman. And by the way, if you ever were at the Feast of Purim, when they would be reading this story in a synagogue, and anybody mentioned the name Haman, what would you do? You'd go, boo, boo, and you'd have these little shakers, and you'd shake you would hardly let the words pass the lips of the rabbi because your job was to blot Haman's name out. And we'll see that here. Uh, so feel free to say boo when I say Haman, uh, you know, if you'd like to do that. All right, so I say Haman, you say boo. There you go, you got it, all right? Because Haman's name is going to be 
blotted out because God is personal and precise in his providential power. So we have the threat identified. And we're told here that this is Haman. There you go. The Agagite. The Agagite. Now, we, we want to we understand that uh, this, this designation, Agagite, is extremely significant in the text. Um, this is sort of personal and precise on another level. Uh, this is personal and precise not because it's going to affect uh, Esther and Mordecai and that generation, but it is personal and precise because this has history behind it. This has history. Uh, uh, An Agagite is, is a name or, or a designation for the Amalekites. The Amalekites. And for those of us who know our history of the people of Israel, we know that the Amalekites were not the friends of the nation of Israel. Um, <clears throat> this word helps to elevate the tension in the story here, this designation about Haman, Boo. Boo, the Agagite. First of all, from Exodus chapter 17, uh, we understand, let's take their Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 17. We'll see a little bit about these Amalekites uh, and, and how severe uh, God viewed them. In Exodus chapter 17, these were the this was the first nation that went to war with the nation of Israel when she was in her infancy coming up out of Egypt. And they would not allow the, uh, the Israelites to pass through their land. And in fact, they engaged them in battle. And as a result, the, the theocratic king uh, uh, promised them in Exodus chapter 17. He says this in verse 14. Got to get there. 16, 17. He says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So Haman represent, is a singular representation of the Amalekites. Uh, the nation that the Lord would be at war with from generation to generation. <clears throat> Balaam, certainly not any hero of the faith. Remember, he was the prophet who was paid to try to come up with some prophecies against the nation of Israel. But every time he spoke in the spirit, he only could bless the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam, in, in, uh, in Numbers chapter 24, let's go back uh, over there, Numbers chapter 24 said this of the Amalekites, Numbers chapter 24, uh, in speaking of these folks, water will flow from his buckets, that's uh, Messiah's buckets or the nations, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag. Agag was sort of the dynastic title for the king of the Amalekites. His kingdom shall be exalted. So, uh, prophesies that uh, the, the king of Israel will always be above the Amalekite. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, we're familiar with that. This is when Saul, in his first battle, took the Amalekites and 
conquered them and took Agag their king. And, and uh, Samuel showed up and he asked the question, what is this bleeding I hear in my ears, Saul? You were supposed to have completely wiped out Agag and all of the plunder. And yet Saul said, no, no, no. Saved the best to offer a sacrifice and, and the king. And, 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 and Samuel said that God is not impressed with sacrifices. He wants obedience. And, and he proclaimed a curse on the household of Saul that day. Uh, and he said, Saul, the, 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 the kingdom is rent out of your hands in that moment. And, and what does he do to Agag? He cuts him in pieces and sends him throughout the land. So there is no love loss, my friends, between Haman, the Agagite, and what is going on here. And that's really the bigger picture, the bigger picture here. This is personal. This is personal. Uh, we know that Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin and was incapable of dealing with uh, the, the, the Amalekites, but let's look back at Esther, Esther chapter 2 and verse number 5, and let's note what tribe Mordecai is from. Anybody can tell me what tribe is from? Chapter 2, verse 5. It happens to be of the same tribe as Saul, and I guarantee you Mordecai is going to finish the job. What Saul couldn't do uh, and really it became sort of the, the byword of the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai is going to come through and rescue the fame of God and the fame of the tribe. Uh, so we have this, this personal, very <clears throat> uh, precise thing going on that has all this history behind it. I mean, truly, uh, 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 Ahasuerus could have elevated any man. I mean, he had all kinds of rulers in his court, but... In God's providence, he chooses Haman, boo, the Agagite. And he's going to make a powerful, comprehensive, and yet precise and personal point that he will always uphold the Abrahamic covenant. There will be no man or no woman or no nation, the expression of humanity's corporate power, will ever be able to overturn that unilateral covenant. It's God's powerful, comprehensive, personal, precise providence that is the bedrock of the hope of the nation of Israel. Not miracles, per se. Now, I'm not saying miracles didn't happen, but that isn't the meat. That isn't the meat. We see uh, 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 the threat intensifies in, in chapter 3, verses two, and 2 through 4. Uh, under, under the pressure of the personal and precise nature of what is going on near God's providence, uh, uh, Mordecai refuses to bow before the Agagite, Haman. Yes, he refuses. And, 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 and it, it's, it's interesting here, the personal, precise nature that, that the command to bow and give homage were to the, those servants who sat in the king's gate of whom Mordecai was one. How precise and personal is that? Mordecai is going to get caught up in this, whether he likes it or not. He's going to have to do something. And he, he refuses to bow and pay homage 
to this wicked man. But, but under the weight of God's providence, he, he, he courageously obeys. And when asked, the, the king's servants inquire in verses 3, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen. They went and said, come on, come on, Mordecai, come on, Mordecai. But they finally tell Haman, boo, to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. He was a Jew. Of all the reasons Mordecai could have given, he says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. And then that evidently would suffice or supposedly from Mordecai's standpoint be enough. So we have the king's servant's inquiry. We, it's the, the, the precision that's going on here and the, the, the personal nature of it is, is really breathtaking. The reason is reported. And then we have the threat systematized finally with, with uh, uh, verses 5 through 6. We have Haman here. Boo. Haman sees finally for himself that Mordecai neither bows down nor pays homage. So it seems as though this had been going on for a while and it had gone over the head of Haman. Boo. He didn't catch it until the king's servants brought it to his attention. And then he notices it. Talking about personal and precise. Somebody had to sort of like wake Haman up. Ooh. Yeah. And God wakes him up because God's going to demonstrate his amazing commitment to his unrelenting ability to keep his promises. I keep my promises. That's what Jehovah means. I keep my promises. Um, have uh, uh, Haman coming up with this idea. Um, and he didn't even, he said it wasn't enough to, to just simply deal with Mordecai. Because Mordecai had given him the reason that he was a Jew. He was going to take it out on the whole nation. Uh, the NIV states verse number 6 this way. It says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people. The Jews throughout the whole of Xerxes. So God's providential power is personal and precise, not only in the lives of those who love him, but also, my friends, in the lives of those who would seek to destroy all that he is and all that he values. God is not powerless. God is providentially working. Finally tonight, it is critical for us to observe that God's providential power is precise and personal, even when the situation seems dire and out of control. We have the plan ratified in 7 through 14. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is, the month of Adar. This is how things work in a worldview that's given to fate. You try to employ magic and spiritism uh, to sort of get on the inside. This is what pagan kings do. We have reported that not only Haman did that, but it was the common practice of, 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 of these Persian rulers to cast lots and to 
look at the livers of dead animals, and, and they would try to, in, in this worldview of fate, try to get an inner track to help them. I mean, even the gods and their pantheon of gods were submitted to this fate, and they were doing magic and all these crazy things to supernavigate, to, 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 I'm sorry, to get around fate. So here, that's what's going on here. This is pagan. This is pagan. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. And the king took his signet ring of all things. This is, this is unmitigated authority. He takes his signet ring from his hand. He gives it to Haman, the Agagite, now identified as who? The enemy of the Jews. Now, this is where God comes in if he hasn't been in already. This is a title you do not want over your head. You do not want to be the enemy of the Jews. You don't. But here he's been as such. He has been singled out. He has been marked. And he will feel the full fury of the powerful, comprehensive, personal and precise providence of God to protect his people and to keep his promise. And he said to Haman, oh, the silver is yours, and the people also do with them as you please. So we have this unmitigated power. Then the, um, so we, just tracking back, so we look at these lots being cast. And, and, and what, what month does it land on? Back into verse 7. Does it land on the first month? Does it land on the second month? Do the Jews only have 90 days to prepare for this? Does God only have 180 days to, to try to figure out a way to save the Jews? It lands on what month? The 12th month. And Haman, being the pagan, good pagan that he is, doesn't sit there and say, oh, that's too long. I want to do it sooner. No, he obeys what the lots cast. The irony here is incredible. The first readers would have read this knowing how the story comes out, and they would have chuckled at this point. Haman, forget the, the thing. Just kill him right now while you have the chance. <laughs> you know, that's what you're thinking. So Haman, thinking he's all in control, using these magical sort of ways to make decisions, and in it all is the precise, personal, providential power of God working in and through. This is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. The irony here is precise and personal. Haman, formally identified by the author as the enemy of the Jews, he has now been personally and precisely identified. Enemies of God may be in the shadows, but in time it becomes clear. Chapter 3, verse 10, now foreshadows the climax and is the beginning of the point of resolution. You know, the king approves wholeheartedly Haman's plan of genocide. 
what tactics did Haman use? Well, he uses the often used tactics. Uh, he begins with the truth that they had been dispersed and scattered, the Jews. That was true. And then he tells a half-truth. Their customs are different than any other buddy, and anybody else's customs. And then he finishes with an outright lie, and they do not obey the king's laws. This is how the enemies of God often work. And the situation seems hopeless, absolutely hopeless at this point. The kings, in verse number 12, the king's scribes are summoned. Uh, the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman had commanded. Now we're getting the, 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 the famous law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be altered. Remember, Daniel wrestled with that. Now we've got Mordecai and Esther are going to wrestle with that. This is, not only does he have the, the signet ring, not only did he have, not have to pay, now it's written in law. And if that wasn't enough, it's going to be communicated to all 127 provinces throughout the empire. You know, this is sort of the reverse of that song we used to sing in, in uh, Sunday school, No Turning Back, No Turning Back. Uh, it seems absolutely hopeless. A little bit of the irony, we don't want to lose it here. Then the king's scribe, verse 12, were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Now, every Jew in the audience who read that would perk up in that moment. The 13th day of the first month is one day before the 14th day of the first month. And what happens on the 14th day of the first month? The Jews celebrate what? Passover, which is the deliverance from whom? The Egyptians, right? So ironically... There would be snickering right here, too, as Haman unwittingly <laughs> tries to destroy the nation of Israel one day before they were going to celebrate their deliverance from the nation of Egypt. Um, ironies abound, precise and personal. So providentially, though, in verse number 15, we read this. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, it seemed like they were the only two in the whole empire that were at peace with this, right? Everybody else, at least in the city of Susa, is thrown into confusion. You know, that, that, that's sort of, this, this is like the story of the, the king with no clothes, Right? And the one little guy kind of convinced him and he walked around naked and everybody was like, this is weird. That's how God's providence works. He, he, he demonstrates the weirdness of pagan things and highlights it. So in conclusion tonight, God's providence personally and precisely protects the fulfillment of his promises. You know, Jesus unilaterally promises to the church that he will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have an Abrahamic-like promise in the church. Know this evening that as precise and personal as God's providence was in the book of Esther, he is just as personal and precise in the life of our church and in your life individually to fulfill that promise. 
the real question that's outstanding is, are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? Are you a protagonist? Are you seeking to live in line with God's desires and longings? And therefore, benefited by God's providence? Or, or are you not? Are you an antagonist? Are you a bad guy? Are you uh, persistently walking away from the things that God loves and God's desires? And you will be the object of God's personal, precise, providential power, and, and if not in this life, in the life to come. You know, it makes no difference, really. God is powerful. It makes no difference to God. It certainly should make a difference to us. But God is powerfully at work, and he will ultimately win. I can courageously obey, though, as a protagonist, knowing that God is at work comprehensively, but even more comfortingly, he's at work in my life precisely and personally. In every fiber of the fabric of my life, God knows all and sees all, and he's pressing me to his desire for my life. Perhaps the most difficult threats that arise to God's plan for my life, and perhaps for yours, are the ones that arise from my own lusts and desires. Know this, believer, there is no miracle forthcoming to deliver you. God has comprehensively prepared and provided for you. His personal and precise providence gives you all that you need to courageously obey. The author of Ephesians puts it this way, you have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. And Paul gives this injunction to Timothy, discipline yourself unto godliness. And all the while, enjoy the powerful, comprehensive, personal, precise providence of God, enabling you to grow in the image of Christ. Even if we fail, even if we fail, believer, he has already secured his promise to you in Christ and assures that he will continue to be at work to conform you into the image of God. Friends, brothers, sisters, what is stopping you from courageously obeying? There should be nothing. Uh, may God help us. Father, we thank you for um, your providence. It's rich. And Lord, I pray that you would train our eyes to see it and to become excited about it, Lord. We, we know so much more about the goal and the destination. And the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has come historically and died and has been buried and rose again bodily from the dead. And and we have a living hope in Him. God, in Your providence, You have comprehensively provided everything that we need as the church to continue to be built as You have promised You would. So Lord, help us to be among the company of those who joyfully participate, uh, who when it comes down to it, like Esther, we will courageously obey, and that You would keep a gospel light shining brightly here in the, uh, in the community of Mentor, and that we would do what you have called us to do, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.